Thanks for leading us, Amanda. See if I can switch microphones here. There we go. Well, if I haven't had a chance to say welcome this morning to you, welcome. It's great to gather with you. My name is Tom, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to open up our new series today called TBH. Now, if someone asks you for a TBH, what are they asking for, folks? They're asking for you to be honest. Now, that's a little texting lingo for those of you who are of a less text-savvy generation. But if somebody asks for a TBH, they're asking for you to be honest. So the question is, how honest are we really? Do you know in a 2002 study, uh, 60% of people were found in the study, 60% of people could not go 10 minutes in a conversation without lying. It's pretty bad, huh? It's actually worse than that. Of those who lied within 10 minutes, they told an average of three lies within 10 minutes of conversation. It kind of makes you rethink some of your conversations at work, doesn't it? Or, or, or with your kids. The article goes on to say, we lie to everyone. Our parents get the worst of it. According to this book that was written called The Day America Told the Truth, 86% of us lie to our parents regularly. Where are my kids? <laughs> I suspect that isn't just true of kids living at home, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, followed by friends, 75%. Uh, siblings, 73%. Spouses, only 69% get lied to. In general, though, they, the lies aren't told about things that are considered important, but little things that make us look better or we think be more likable. Maybe you've been caught lying sometime, fudging things. Maybe, in fact, it's a little something like this from our friends Rhett and Link. Take a look at this. Really? Yeah, I never thought I'd see a boa constrictor and a guinea pig featured in a cute animal buddy's montage, but the snake was just hugging him so tight. <laughs> it's Rob. Don't answer. He's going to ask us to help him move. Rob! Hey, Link! Hey! Am I on speaker? Yeah, Rhett's here. Hey, Rob. Oh, good. I got both of you. Hey, I was wondering if you guys could give me a hand with moving out of my place on Saturday. Uh, Saturday? I've got to, uh, chop down some trees. <laughs> and then throw the trees in a pile? What? Yeah, we're, uh, cleaning up a wooded lot by hand. Uh, we're starting a forest community. Self-sustaining. Oh, okay. Well, I can't wait to see it. Well, well it'll be a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's six acres. On a slope. I think he bought it. Yeah, he did. You know what I just can't get enough of? What? Honesty. I know, right? It's so refreshing. For me, it's honesty or I'm not interested. Totally. <laughs> That's what we need, man. Yeah. We need more honesty in our lives. We just told so many lies to so many people. And now we need to go back to each one of them and come clean. Well, if you want to watch the rest of that great video, I will post it to our Facebook site this afternoon. It's a lot of fun with a little bit of a twist at, at the end. So maybe we could be a little more honest with others. I think we could probably all conclude that. But sometimes when we think of honesty, we only think of being honest with others and we completely overlook how dishonest we can be with ourselves. 
How honest are we when we look in the mirror? Truth is, not very. We spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time rearranging the wool over our own eyes. We deny our emotional struggles. We ignore marriage problems. We shrug off maybe physical concerns. We resist self-examination. We dream up excuses for why we aren't growing spiritually. We dodge, duck, duck. You know, we we weave. We we kind of avoid. Friends, we are masters in the art of self-deception. Dr. Courtney Warren, in her TEDx talk on self-deception, she explains why. She says, at the core. We lie to ourselves because we don't have enough psychological strength to admit the truth and deal with the consequences that will follow. That said, understanding our self-deception is the most effective way to live a fulfilling life. For when we admit who we really are, we have the opportunity to change. You hear that last line? I want to say it again. It's really important. If we admit who we really are, we have the opportunity to change. And that's just it, isn't it? In order to change, we've got to get honest. No honesty, no growth. And the longer I follow Jesus, the longer I pursue health, the more I work with people who are struggling to overcome something, trying to grow, trying to experience change in their life or in their relationships, the more that I see people responding to what God wants for them, what really actually they want for them, the more I'm convinced of this this truth, that our spiritual and our relational and our emotional health and growth is is intimately connected to our growth in self-awareness, honesty, and vulnerability. We'll honestly never grow if we never grow in honesty. Growing healthy actually requires growing honesty. In 2017, I've shared this with you, I had to get honest about my mental health. Because for the first time in my life, I was experiencing depression. And it took me quite a while to get honest. It did. Some of you received the first honesty from me on that. I was slow to understand what was going on. I was slow to admit the struggle. I finally started to get honest. I started saying things to some of you at, around campfires or in backyards or in conversations. And I, I didn't even know what I was doing, but I just started getting honest. And I didn't at first even say the word depression. I would say things like, man, I just, I'm just not feeling good. Or I feel really discouraged. And as I got more honest and got more clarity, it took me forever to get a counselor. When I finally did, it was helpful. I can tell you this. Getting honest about my mental health has led me to a healthier place. It has. That getting healthier depended on getting honest. And we see this, I think, everywhere that we drill down. We'll never be honest or never be healthy emotionally if we don't get honest about what we're feeling. Even if we aren't aware that we have certain feelings and we haven't delved into that. I mean, would you believe it that for me, I'm 44 years old, and it's just in the last year that I have admitted to feeling angry sometimes. Now, <laughs> you know, I remember that. 20 year, 25 years ago, my sister said to me, 
I've never seen you angry. And that should have been a clue that there was something off. But, you know, I was, well, you do the math, in my 20s. And, and I thought, well, that's great. I must be just more and more like Jesus. Because <laughs> I wasn't angry. Uh, now, I'm not saying I didn't have anger. I just said I didn't know I had anger. I, I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't admitting it. It wasn't the nice thing. Christian, you know, good godly Christian men don't have anger, right? Started admitting it. Started acknowledging it. Started talking it over with Tanil. Started talking it over with my spiritual director who I meet monthly. His name is Terry and he's down in Michigan. But we meet on Skype and we talk about these things. And he started hauling out stuff for me to consider. And unless we get honest about our emotions, we won't get healthy emotionally. We won't experience, I believe, healthy relationships if we don't get honest about some of the ways that our family of origins has affected us, the ways that we deal with conflict, the way that we speak, the way that we think about our interactions, the way that they've shaped us for good and for ill. Getting honest about some of our inherited patterns or our childhood traumas are critical to the health of our both emotions and our relationships today, whether that be relationships with kids, young kids, adult kids, whether that be relationships with, with friends, with spouses, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Dr. Uh, Courtney Warren, who did that TEDx talk again, she weighs in on this. She says, as adults, we will, listen to this, we will most want to lie about how psychologically painful realities experienced as children affected who we are today. Those things in our lives when we were young, how painful they were, we're going to lie about how much they are affecting us Today, that's, that's one of the areas of self-deception. One of the reasons why uh, Dana and I have been encouraging everyone to read this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, if you haven't had this flogged to you, consider this your flogging. This book is super helpful on a number of the things you talk about, but particularly one of the areas is helping you dig down into some of your family of origin stuff and the way that that affects you relationally and emotionally. And then one of the main tenets of this book is this connection between following Jesus and, and emotional health. You've got to get honest. Now, I could go on. We could talk about health physically. You've got to get honest about your eating habits, your fragile genetics, your sedentary lifestyle. And then, of course... With spiritual health, unless we get honest with, with ourselves and with God and with others about our sin patterns, as well as our strengths, our, our needs, as well as our desires, we're not going to experience the fullness of health that God desires for us. We'll honestly never grow if we never grow in honesty. And we all, I believe, want to grow. We want to experience what God has for us. We want to be more healthy in our relationships and in the ways that we connect, in the ways that we engage. We, we want to become more healthy as God intended. And so for this fall series, we're going to get honest. We're going to lean into that honesty, believing that honesty is the key to health. The more honest we are with God, the more healthy we will become spiritually. The more honest we are with ourselves the more healthy we'll become emotionally, and the more honest we are with each other, the more healthy we will become relationally. And we're going to do this by immersing ourselves in a collection of 150 very honest songs, poems, prayers from the Old Testament in the book, a collection of books called the Psalms. Some of you, this is old territory, you're familiar with the Psalms, and for some of you, this is brand new. This will be a brand new introduction 
into the Psalms. And with the Psalms shaping our prayers and our thinking and our reflection, we will grow in honesty. If honesty creates health, think of the Psalms like our exercise class this fall, you know. Think of the... Well, don't think about that. If honesty is like uh, the drill bit into the core of our lives, you can, you can think of the Psalms as the rig that God uses. We discover this prayer of honesty, which kind of sets the tone for us today, in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. This is the prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Put out, point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. This is an incredible prayer. And if we'll ingest this prayer, immerse ourselves in it, let it shape our hearts and our minds and our words and our thoughts. If we give God full permission to take his drill bit of honesty and go as deep as he wants to go, he really will lead us on the path to everlasting life. The path he's promised to take us on. So with all that as a setup, I'd like to invite you into the Psalms this fall. Yes, for this series, but not just Sunday mornings when we connect, but that it would shape our fall as people, as families, as individuals, that we would travel into the Psalms. So I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to the Psalms. Think of this as a little bit of teaching, a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of framework around, around the Psalms. I think there's at least six reasons the Psalms help us grow in honesty and ultimately in, in health. So I just want to take you through these six reasons. There's a spot you can write notes on if you would like in your, in your bulletins. First, the Psalms are raw and real. They're raw and real. In the Psalms, you'll discover nothing is off limits. And if you haven't, if you haven't discovered this already, you'll see it as you get into it. There's, there's no feeling, no emotion, no question that's not somehow represented in these poems, in these Psalms. And if you grew up in a setting, maybe a, maybe a religious setting, but maybe a non-religious setting where you know, certain things weren't appropriate, you don't say that kind of thing. And you certainly don't say that kind of thing at a prayer or around a preacher. You know, that kind of setting. You will be shocked at what you discover in the Psalms. There's betrayal represented, anger, hate. But then it's mixed, sometimes in the same psalm, with celebration and gratitude and exaltation. You think, what is going on? There's tears on your bed at night and there's joyful marching along the street the next day. There's violent fantasies that are clashing with these wonderful expressions of love. Deep, aching depression is represented, as well as mind-blowing reflections on how big and great God is. It's all captured here, and it's real, and it's raw. We hear things like, my heart, my life, from Psalm 88. My life is full of troubles, and death draws near. I'm as good as dead, like a strong man with no strength left, which can really accurately represent some of us and what we're experiencing, what we're feeling. The struggle is real, and the Psalms help us get honest with that. But on other days, we also declare, just a couple of Psalms later, Psalm 111, praise the Lord, I will thank the Lord with all my heart as I meet with his godly people. Real and raw, and it gets down deep. And the authenticity, I think, if we'll take it seriously, it really surprises us. It can even rattle us a bit because the Psalms give us words to express emotions that are hidden, deep ways 
within us. And by praying and saying the Psalms, we'll deepen our honesty with these raw, real words that we might never have expressed if it hadn't been given to us to say. So the Psalms are real and raw. The Psalms are also ours to say. Whether it's poetic or or, or plain, these are words for us. And I think this is really interesting. Think about it. All the rest of the Bible are essentially God's word spoken to us. 65 books. But the Psalms are our words spoken back to God. You know, through all the rest of the Bible, God spoke to us through prophets and historians and apostles and and teachers. But the Psalms, they somehow capture our groaning and our longings, our praise and our gratitude. And they offer them back to God. And I think this is a powerful idea. The fact that we're able to speak back to the God who spoke first to us. Now, we don't need the Psalms to do that. We can pray maybe through other scriptures. We can pray from our own hearts and minds and experiences for sure, and we, and we should. But the Psalms, they help us clarify our speech to God. They give us tracks to follow. They, they drive us to places that we wouldn't have gone and even lead us to pray and say things that we wouldn't have said. And what do we do when we don't know how to pray in the first place? When we're new to this, or perhaps we've been praying for a long time, we feel like we've come to a place where we're stuck. Where it's just same old, same old. How do we do this? Well, the Psalms are the ticket. Eugene Peterson, in his introduction to um, his translation or paraphrase in the message, introduction to the Psalms, I should say, this is what he said, quote, untutored, We tend to think that prayer is what good people do when they're doing their best. It is not. Inexperienced, we suppose that there must be an insider language that must be acquired before God takes us seriously in prayer. There is not. Prayer is elemental, not advanced language. It is the means by which our language becomes honest true and personal in response to God. It is the means by which we get everything in our lives out in the open before God, end quote. So the Psalms lead us as a church to respond to God. They're ours to say. Third, the Psalms are extensive in theme. There's 150 of them. They're collected by some later editors into five books to reflect the first five books, kind of a, kind of a call and response idea. The content doesn't connect, but the idea of five does. Uh, Six of the main themes in the Psalms we're going to be covering in this fall series. Uh, Themes such as Thanksgiving. Oh, very handy. Next week on Thanksgiving weekend, preachers try to time those things right. You don't want to do lament Psalms on Thanksgiving, you understand. So uh, the following week will be lament Psalms, though. Those are two major categories in the Psalms, but also there's Psalms of confession and worship and Psalms that give us much-needed perspective on our lives. But there's also royal Psalms and comfort Psalms and wisdom Psalms and, and Psalms that, that, that speak of God's faithfulness. There's creation Psalms. You, you can go on and on. What's really interesting, though, is that these themes in these Psalms, they often intertwine. They mix For example, at times, lament with thanksgiving or worship with confession. 
the categories are, aren't, aren't all neat and clean, like one psalm's only about this and another psalm's only about this, which kind of makes sense, right? Because that's true about our lives. We are rarely experiencing only one thing. Life is a mix of themes, you could say. We can feel really down in one area of our lives, but feel super excited about another area. We can feel very betrayed by a friend, but also very thankful for another. Part of maturity is experiencing these conflicting and varied emotions and being honest about them and navigating how they mash up together as we follow Jesus. In the Psalms, we can see that as well. And so with a little, little test case here this morning, Psalm 13, which is a classic lament psalm, it's not very long. It begins with this kind of gut-wrenching honesty. It says, I love this, powerful, and some of you will really resonate with this. It says, oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long must you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul and sorrow in my heart every day? I mean, this is the person feeling abandoned, feeling alone, feeling like God has forgotten them, wondering what is going on and, and having this deep turmoil within them. But we're taking on a journey, even through this little psalm, that through the honesty of this struggle, we're, we're brought to a place of, of, of memory or of perspective, even trust. And Psalm 13, just a few verses later, it ends with these powerful words. After speaking so honestly to God, and so bravely and so brashly to God about what he needs to do to change the situation, the psalmist concludes by saying, but, that but is so important, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you've rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. The psalms are extensive in theme, and you'll, we'll all discover that as we walk through together. Fourth, the psalms are accessible to all. You know, because of this wide-ranging themes, um, they are accessible. Like, like most of the Bible, there's actually a way to get in to them, even if much of the territory discovered when we get in is kind of unfamiliar. The Psalms use all this vivid imagery that invites us in. It's poetic, and sometimes it's strange, even using metaphors we're unfamiliar with, but somehow it's vivid and it draws us in. It's the reason why people who are new or, or maybe unfamiliar with the Bible still resonate with a psalm like Psalm 23, where the Lord is our shepherd and I, I, I won't you know, lack for anything. And he leads us through pastures and quiet waters. There's something visual and it connects to a place of struggle. The fact that God is caring for us and leading us through darkness and into safety. It's obvious why psalms like Psalm 19 with kind of a galactic rhapsody and all this incredible imagery, it's appealed and inspired naturalists and scientists for centuries. And even the darkest psalms like Psalm 88 have touched people who wouldn't normally access the Bible. I remember hearing a story uh, just a few years ago about a young man who was in high school, been through a lot of difficult things, and he, was, he had planned... Uh, on a certain day, he was going to take his life. And so um, he didn't believe in God. He didn't think he had anything left to live for. And through a series of God-directed encounters, um, it's a pretty amazing story, a few Christian high school friends uh, invited this young man to come and sit with them. And, and, uh, and, and just the way they invited him, he, he thought he'd, he'd connect. And he was planning to go home that, that day and, and, and end his life. But because of the, the winsomeness and the invitation of these, these young high schoolers, uh, he decided to put his suicide plans on hold 
um, even just for, for a few days. He was a bit of a musician poet. He probably had uh, plenty of angst to write good poetry. And this group of young Christians also were into music. And soon into their friendship, one young woman said to this student who was still an atheist, hey, you should check out the Psalms. They're full of great lyrics for music and poetry. And then she gave him a copy of her own, her own Bible. And, and the young man decided, he, well, give it a shot. He decided to, he probably wanted to impress the girl, I'm not sure. He decided to start mining the Psalms for some, some, good, some good lyrics. But as he did, the Holy Spirit got a hold of him, began to ignite his heart and his mind, and, and led him further on in the story, ultimately to the Gospel of John, this fourth story in the New Testament about Jesus, and led him to Jesus. And this man began to discover that there was a God who loves him and that Jesus was real, and, and he turned his life over to Jesus and since then helped many others do that as well. It's one of the singers in, I, I, they're not super well-known, but I know some of you know, one of the singers in a, a group called I Am They. And uh, their music has gone on to touch many, many people's lives as well as his story. <laughs> and he did end up marrying the girl who gave him the Bible, so there you go. Uh, <clears throat> Whether they're kids or, or elders, longtime followers of Jesus, or just fresh to the story, the Psalms really are accessible to all. Fifth, the Psalms are proven pathways. The truth is, when you begin to get your bearings through the Psalms, you're accessing ancient tools of spiritual orientation. It's one of the reasons why I picked one of the, the image of the compass about bearing toward honesty in the Psalms, this idea of the spiritual orientation that the Psalms give us. And the people of God, both Jewish and Christian, have been praying and singing and saying these collection, this collection of Psalms for, for thousands of years. Eugene Peterson, again, in his introduction to the Psalms, he makes this point. He says, quote, Most Christians, for most of the Christian centuries, have learned to pray by praying the Psalms. The Hebrews, with several centuries of a head start on us in matters of prayer and worship, provided us with this prayer book that gives us a language adequate for responding to the God who speaks to us, end quote. These are well-worn paths. Jesus himself prayed the Psalms. And this isn't just an irregular thing that we can just dip into every once in a while. That actually, what our brothers and sisters from the past have done, they daily prayed the Psalms. And the daily praying of the Psalms has been central to the life of Christians for centuries. It's been proving time and time again how relevant and enduring and powerful and helpful these Psalms are. They lead us to honesty. They lead us to health and life and union with the Father through Jesus by the Spirit. When we pray or say the Psalms, it's, if you think about it historically even, it's like we join a choir of voices. In the Apostles' Creed, which we'll say later in our, our communion liturgy, we, they refer to the communion of saints. It's referring to people down through the ages who are still alive in Christ. These people have, have prayed and, uh, the, these Psalms all through the generations, and we join that choir, faithful men and women who have voiced these same Psalms through triumph, as well as through trials down through the ages. And as we, as we do, as we voice these, we'll find that they lead us straight and true. Sixth, the Psalms lead us to Jesus. As we pray the Psalms, we pray them in the light of the life and the teaching and the death, the resurrection, and the ongoing kingship of Jesus. The truth is, we read all the Old Testament that way. 
as followers of Jesus. But as we begin to voice the words of the Psalms, they also lead us in a fresh way back to Jesus. And this is really important. I mean, not only are many of the Psalms prophetic, pointing towards specific things in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus in important ways, but the Psalms themselves as prayers are now filtered through Jesus. For example, when we pray the royal Psalms, which were originally penned as prayers of blessing for the human king. We now pray them now as an expression of our loyalty and our praise to Jesus, our true king. When we read or pray the very long Psalm 119, uh, which is a, a really a verse-by-verse kind of exaltation of God's word, we now pray it as people who believe that the word has been made flesh in Jesus Christ. And what about, this is a concern, might be a concern for some of you as you dive into it, what about some of the really ugly, violent expressions of hatred and anger we find in the Psalms? Things like wanting to slaughter your enemies or wishing people were never born or even worse than that. This is where it actually gets super powerful because through the Psalms, we are forced, I mean invited, (laughs) to be honest and acknowledge for real and true the kind of emotions that we can carry when we're angry, when we've been betrayed, when someone has has, has jammed on us, when we're feeling despair or, or just feeling mutinous, that these are real and true experiences that we're having, and they express that. But this is so important. We're not left there. The Psalms lead us back to Jesus, who, when he died on the cross, he didn't suddenly quote, Oh God, from Psalm 139, if only you would destroy the wicked. You know, get out of my life, you murderers. Nor did he say, Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred. For your enemies are my enemies. That's not what Jesus said. But we can feel that at times, if we're honest, about things that are going on in the world things that are happening in the lives of people that we love. But those feelings, those are real feelings, and through the Psalms, they lead us back to Jesus, who didn't pray this when he was on the cross, but rather Jesus, who taught us to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. Jesus prayed, Father, hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. One of our greatest uh, living biblical theologians, his name is Tom Wright, He says, the story the Psalms tell is the story Jesus came to complete. It's the story of the creator God taking his power and reigning, ruling on earth as it is in heaven, delighting the whole creation by sorting out its messes and muddles, its injuries and injustices once and for all. It is the story of malevolent enemies prowling around, of people whispering lies and setting traps and of sleepless nights and bottles of tears. The Psalter, that's a funny name for the Psalms, the Psalter, Tom Wright goes on to say, forms the great epic poem of the creator and covenant God who will at the last visit and redeem his people and with them the whole creation. The early Christians believed that that was precisely what happened in Jesus. End quote. 
this raw violence, this real ugliness in the Psalms, it is expressed, it is acknowledged, and it calls us to acknowledge what we feel and what, what is going on inside of us to bring that, but then let it lead us to the cross of Jesus because it's only the honest that get healthy. So that's our invitation, to pray the Psalms with Jesus, to let those Psalms lead us to Christ, to allow the words of the Psalms to align us with the Word of God, Jesus Christ himself. Six reasons, give you a little bit of a framework why the Psalms are great. So what are we going to do with this? Well, at the Erickson Covenant Church, we really do believe in acting on what we hear, what we learn. We don't want to be people who just sit around listening to stuff. We're committed to doing it. And so throughout this fall series, we're going to be encouraging you to integrate what you're hearing in at least two key ways. First, through honest conversations. Now, part of this is joining a small group. Plug, plug, plug. Because we really believe that getting together regularly with a smaller group of folks and getting honest about what God is doing in your life, of how the Psalms are connecting with your life, of how you're growing to acknowledge things in your life emotionally or relationally or spiritually, that getting together with a safe, small group of folks to actually get that stuff out in the open and be vulnerable is actually key to growth. In fact, without it, there'll be whole areas of your life that can't grow. Honest conversations. Now, that's true in a small group. We believe that that is crucial. But I also want to challenge you to become more honest in your conversations with others who are in your life, with spouses or friends, with trusted people, people that you've been walking around for a while and it's time for you to lean in and get more honest. It is key that we get honest in our conversations. Second, integrating practices. Every week through this series, we'll introduce a key integrating practice, sometimes called the spiritual discipline, but I thought integrating practice was a little less scary because no one likes the word discipline, including me. But they'll help us grow. They'll, they'll get the Psalms into us. And so for today's integrating practice, it's, it's actually very simple, but it's something that will extend through our series for the fall. It's a way of engaging the Psalms personally, and it'll heighten your experience both in small groups and in conversation and as we gather here on Sundays. And here's the challenge. We want you to read three Psalms a day. Three Psalms a day for 50 days. It gets you through them all. There's 150. And what we've done to help you with that is we've uh, created a bookmark for you. Now, some of you will read it on, in a paper Bible. Some of you will download the YouVersion app, very good app, and might read it in a, in a digital format. Uh, many of you, I think, will access it through audio, which I really, really encourage. But we provide this bookmark to track read. Now, they're out there somewhere. Who has these? Yeah. Members of the Dream Team are going to hand them out right now to you. Um, these bookmarks have um, a little, uh, little quote at the top, which you'll hear in a minute, but they also have 150 squares, and they're designed for you as you read through the Psalms, as you read three a day, that you strike them off to keep track of where, of where you are. Now, I want to give you a little hint. And some of you would be tempted to color in the entire block, rendering it ineffective for your second time through the Psalms. Here's my hint. Here's my little life hack for you. What you want to do is you make a simple one stroke through the block so that when you go through a second time, you then make an opposite stroke, forming an X. Then, when you go through it for the third time, you just make a line down the center. You're making a star pattern here, just for you. Then the fourth time, 
across the top. Then eventually at a certain point it's all filled in and you just, you know, by then you have them memorized. Um, but take this bookmark and use it. On the back side we've included uh, some psalms that are representative of the themes we'll be exploring uh, this fall as well as some little uh, facts that you may or may not be aware of. I do want to warn you though about November the 8th. If you were to start this tomorrow morning, perfect time by the way, October the 1st, if you were to start this tomorrow morning, I want to warn you about November the 8th. You want to circle it in your calendar and allot yourself a few extra minutes because on that day, you get to read the shortest psalm. Psalm 117 has two verses. But guess what else you get to read? The longest one, which has 176 verses. All in the same morning. I just did it this last week in my reading, and it does take a little extra time. I forgot to put my timer on for you. But hey, there's your warning. It'll be amazing. But this first integrating practice, it's more than just a reading plan. It's more than just a tricky strategy to get you, get you into, or a series of boxes for you to check. It's actually an invitation for us as a community to bear our lives toward honesty, to let the Psalms act like a compass guiding us to greater vulnerability with God, greater openness with others, and greater honesty with yourself. And in all that, I believe, leading us directly back to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. little encouragement from Tom Wright. It's the quote I wrote at the top of the, book, uh, of the bookmark, just to end. He says, sing these songs, and they will renew you from head to toe, from heart to mind. Pray these poems, and they will sustain you on the long, hard, but exhilarating road of Christian discipleship. Now that, a pathway to life. As we transition to communion today, I want you to think of the difference that this kind of health would make in your life, in your relationships, in your emotions. Perhaps there's an area of your life, even, even as we were talking this morning, you began to identify, yet, yes, that is an area where I, I need to grow or I need to experience more health. I need, I need to acknowledge some things. Maybe there's something that you've been struggling with in a particular relationship with, a, with one of your kids or, or, or with a friend or, or a colleague at work. There could be an area in your life where you know desperately it's time for you to get honest about your need for more emotional health. It's time for you to find a counselor. It's time for you to, to start, start going back and, and digging in. It's time for you to buy a book and start reading it, whatever. time for you to start digging in. Or maybe you've identified a place in your life where your friendship with God, it's become shallow, dead. What would it be like for you to grow in health? What would it be like for, for, for life to come back in that area, for things to become more clear, more honest, more vulnerable? Whatever that area might be, I encourage you to acknowledge it. To acknowledge it to God. Find someone trusted to speak to it about. And to lean into that honesty. Trusting that God will lead you on a path to life. But as we come to communion today, um, it's important to recognize something about our health. While God loves you so much that he wants you to become more healthy, you don't have to become more healthy for God to love you. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. Well, God loves you so much that he wants you to become more healthy. You don't have to become more healthy for God to love you. 
And we are thankful for that. This invitation, to be honest, is not so we can get God to love us. His love is ours. It's been given, us, given to us freely in Jesus. And his, his love for us, it comes to us and it's given to us. And it invites us to get real. It invites us to get honest. And through that honesty, to begin to receive more healing and, 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 and more health and more life. Because that is what the God who loves us wants for us. And so you could say that coming to the communion table today is really an act of bold honesty. Where we acknowledge how healthy we really can be. How much we need God's grace and healing. We come in in honesty and we receive all we need from Jesus. Because he loves us and he lives for us and he died for us and he rose for us. And so as a result, being honest really isn't a problem. Nothing we say, nothing we do is beyond the scope of what Jesus knows anyway, but also what he's forgiven already. And repentance, to use the old word, which just means a total turnaround, is really about getting honest. It's about coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you know the whole story. I'm acknowledging it to you. You know my darkest sin. You know where I'm struggling. You know I'm a mess. And then, as he looks into your eyes, hearing him say, well, yeah, but I think you're beautiful. Come on in. Sit down and eat up. I've got great things in store for you. That's what it means to come to communion. That's what it means to be honest.